the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, Michael Bloomberg smacks his head on a branch of privilege theory, assault fraudster Jesse Smollett might get his just desserts, and the assisted suicide debate reveals what social conservatives and progressives have in common. I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we explore how people change their minds. And you have tuned into a breakdown session where we talk about the news, the issues of our day that impact you, and try to bring a little moral and logical clarity to all of the political and cultural confusion that's out there. Thank you so much for being with me today. You have a lot of podcast options nowadays. I think verging on a million podcast options, and you have chosen this one, and I am very, very grateful for that. Before I get into the top stories, we're going to talk about Michael Bloomberg's audio that surfaced from 2015 regarding his policing tactics. We're going to talk about Jesse Smollett, and we're going to talk about social justice, and then we're going to talk about interview highlights. But before we get to that, please hit subscribe. So that you know every time I'm posting a new 180 cast episode, because you wouldn't want to miss out. I mean, you're here today, which means you probably want to be here for the next episode too. We release episodes every Friday. Half of them are in-depth interviews with somebody who has changed their mind on, it could be any number of subjects. And uh, the other half are breakdown sessions like this one. Okay, let's go ahead and get into this top story that has been on people's minds for a few days now, and I think needs to be discussed in a slightly different way than it is being discussed on the right and the left. Here we go. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. Okay, so presidential candidate and former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, is in hot water about some comments that surfaced from 2015, where he was being asked in a Q&A session about his policing tactics, and he defended stop and frisk. He defended hotspot policing. Here's what he had to say. Here's the uh, the full bit that's relevant, just so you have the context. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit one of them. You can just take the description and Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male, minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. You've got to, you want to spend the money for a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So it's one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, 
That's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the, the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that, I don't want to get caught, so they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. That last part especially is what people have been focusing on, is throw them up against the wall and frisk them. Um, and him talking about basically you can take one profile of the people who do the majority of the crime, Xerox it and hand it out to everybody. And it's minority uh, males between the ages of like 14 and 25, I think is what he said there. So young minority males saying, those are the ones that are producing the most crime. So on the one hand, we've got the left that is crying, Bloomberg is such a racist. I can't believe he ever supported stop and frisk. I can't believe he ever supported hotspot policing. It's about um, keeping poor uh, minority communities under control and under lockdown and oppressing them. And their main piece of evidence supporting this idea is that the people who are stopped by stop and frisk are wildly disproportionately African-American or Hispanic. They're not white people compared to the percentage of the population that they actually make up in New York. On the other hand, we've got the right who says, no, 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 wait a second, wait a second. That's stupid. You have to look at the crime rates. You can't just look at the general population because we're not talking about the general population and we're not talking about lawful citizens here. We're talking about trying to find the people who do have illegal guns and those people are the ones who are committing the crime. So you have to look at the crime statistics, which is, of course, what Michael Bloomberg is saying. He's saying, well, we do we put the cops where the crime is. Like, doesn't that make sense? And so that's what the right is saying. For instance, you've got Heather McDonald, who's widely considered on the right to be uh, an expert on the subject of police and race relations. And she says that blacks are 66% of all violent crime suspects. Blacks commit around 70% of all robberies and about 80% of all shootings in the city. Add Hispanic shooters and you account for 98% of all shootings in the city. 98%. 98%. Whites, by contrast, were only 5% of all violent crime suspects in 2011. And they commit barely over 1% of all shootings and less than 5% of all robberies. So this is where the right is like, mic drop, yeah. Own the libs. Look at the crime statistics. Stop and frisk is totally okay. It's totally exactly the policy that we need to be having because the 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 rate of crime is 98% committed by this certain group of people. And it's true that criminologists uh, across the board have said, look, regardless of, of race, we know that like there is a criminal cr class a type of person that commits the vast majority of crimes. They're the people who commit these crimes over and over and over again, and they tend to be people in young adulthood. And you throw family breakdown on top of that, which disproportionately, sadly, happens in minority communities, and you have even more of that disproportionately happening among poor minority communities. Here's here's the thing, though. You, you have to look deeper than just 
what the the crime statistics say for the city. You have to look at the data that is most directly relevant to the to the policy that you're talking about. And if you're going to talk about stop and frisk, you have to look at stop and frisk data. What does the what does the policy uncover? What does it not uncover? And he, basically here's here's the story here. Almost 90% of stops did not produce weapons or arrests according to 2012 data. In 2013, a a district judge basically ruled the way that stop and frisk was being uh, performed in New York City as unconstitutional. And so basically they cut stop and frisk down all the way to like 2% of what it was before. So it's practically non-existent now. Almost 90% of those stops didn't produce weapons or arrests. Out of over half a million searches in 2012, we're talking about some 530,000 searches in 2012, only 729 guns were found. An analysis of 2012 statistics, I'm getting this from an RT article, analysis of 2012 statistics provided by the Public Advocate's Office shows that the likelihood that an African-American detained for search would be found in possession of a weapon was half that of a white person. Half. Wait, let me just read that again, because you might be thinking, I don't understand, that doesn't make any sense. The likelihood that an African-American detained for search would be found in possession of a weapon was half that of a white person. That likelihood is about one in 49 stops for white people. The likelihood that you would find a weapon on a white person via stop and stop question and frisk. And then it's one out of 71 for Latinos and one out of 93 stops for blacks. Now, you be saying, well, if you're doing hotspot policing, doesn't that kind of make sense because you're stopping more minorities? But, but the point is, is that the data that's most relevant, which is whether or not you're uncovering weapons, whether it be a knife or whether it be a gun, you're not uncovering them at the rates that you would think that you would be uncovering them based off of the crime reports, right? Because the right is saying, but they commit the, the, the vast majority of the crime. Well, wouldn't it make sense that the majority of the stops that do produce weapons would be, it would be more likely that an African-American who was stopped or a Hispanic who was stopped would be more likely to have a weapon on them than a white person? Doesn't that make sense? I know, it's very inconvenient when you actually look at the data. You know, I actually downloaded the Excel spreadsheet to see for myself what was going on. And it's true, they have Various, um, they have like several different categories for the type of weapon and they have a category for whether an arrest was made. Like it is very, very detailed data. And you just see it's like Y or N for yes or no. And you just go down the list, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And it's almost all no's. There's a couple scattered Y's in there, but it's almost all no's. Now, according to Michael Bloomberg, well, they're leaving the guns at home because they don't want to get they don't want to get caught. Yeah, you could say that. You could say they're leaving the guns at home because they don't want to get caught. That's that's arguable, but it's also very hard to prove that this is being used as a deterrent. You would think, actually, that the the rates 
of likelihood of somebody having a weapon on them would be at least somewhat similar among blacks and Hispanics and whites and anybody else based off of this idea that it's a deterrent. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. I mean, you're talking about blacks are half as likely to carry a weapon as a white person. You've got to look at the data that's most relevant. And I understand that this this stuff is very complicated and criminology is very complicated and there are compounding factors and things like that. But the least, the least that the right and the left could do is to look at the data that's most specific to the subject that they're talking about. Is that really too much to ask? Now, as far as hotspot policing, I think that that's a little bit different. Stop and frisk, stop question and frisk, I have a problem with. Because you say you have basically reasonable suspicion, which is just a a cop out of probable cause. And then 90% of the time you turn up nothing. You're wrong nine out of 10 times. There's a there's a social cost to stop and frisk. There is. People who are, you know, thrown up against a wall or or slammed against a car or down on the ground, you know, lifted up by their belt loops to check them, it, it, that's humiliating. To be subjected to that and to not have any weapon on you and to be subjected to that like you're some kind of criminal. It's like, could you even imagine? I haven't been stopped and frisked, but if I did, I would have a serious problem with it because that's humiliating and it violates my right and my autonomy as an American citizen to go about my business doing normal things unmolested by the state. I know that's kind of a libertarian perspective on things. That's the perspective that I take. Now, as far as hotspot policing goes, officers are supposed to, I mean, it's you. It's your duty as a government to put police to put your resources where there is the biggest opportunity for them to pay off, which means you're putting them in the places where you get the most reports of crime. But that has to be balanced against civil liberties and checked by probable cause, not just, I have a hunch that this person may have a weapon on them. They're making furtive movements, not just a hunch. You need to balance these things against civil liberties and probable cause. Because there is a cost. You say, yes, there's a deterrent, but there's also a cost to it as well, a social cost. The fact that somebody matches the description, i.e. a young adult minority, is not good enough reason for a stop, question, and frisk. Just because you're a minority that fits the description doesn't mean that you're a criminal. It doesn't mean that you're likely to be a criminal. That's where people who actually care about civil liberties and who actually care about racism are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Kind of seems like there is a racial aspect to that, as if you can consider anybody who's 21 and Hispanic to be a suspect. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. But back to what the, the left is saying on this. The left has basically made their case just off of population statistics, right? The thing that's least relevant to what we're talking about. And let me explain why. I, I don't think it's because they're stupid. I think it's because they're being influenced, they're being driven by their ideology. And the ideology on the left nowadays is dominated by privilege theory. It, basically, the, the evidence for privilege theory, white privilege theory, the, the idea that there is an oppressive structure or oppressive structures that are inherently racist in our capitalist society and keeping down minorities 
The evidence for that comes up in disparate impact. So if a minority is disproportionately impacted, let's say they're disproportionately stopped by stop and frisk, compared to just the general population in the area, well then that's that's reason enough to to say that it's racist. It's it's not that they're they're stupid or or they they lack critical thinking skills per se. Though that might be true in some cases. I wouldn't go around saying that, but that might be true in some cases. It's that they believe that disparate impact in itself is injustice. And for them it's like the case is just open and closed at that point. Now, a lot of this a lot of this depolicing and decriminalizing is driven by this idea of disparate impact that minorities are being disproportionately impacted by some of these policies. Take bail bond reform in New York, right? This is uh, effective as of January 1st, 2020. Virtually all bail is eliminated for nonviolent crimes, especially drug offenses and including burglary and robbery. Virtually all bail is eliminated. And get this, release decisions may not be based on an assessment of the defendant's future dangerousness or risk to public safety. Did you know that? Judges can't take into account whether or not somebody might be a danger to society in terms of whether or not they're going to be remanded and held until their court date. They can consider, they can consider flight risk, but they can't consider that. And the idea behind this was bail is disproportionately impacting poor people people from poor communities who are disproportionately minority because they can't afford bail. So that's inherently unfair, right? Well, now many people are alleging that this recent spike in crime, which core index crimes are up 17% except for murder and rape. A lot of people are alleging that this is probably because of bail reform because people are, are being rung up on their charges and then they're, they've got a court date and then they're let back out into the streets to reoffend. Now, you, you've only got basically one month of data here. So it, it is, the, the critics have a, a point when they say you, you don't, maybe you don't have enough data to really say if this is because of bail reform. But it does stand to reason that, that this is what would happen. For instance, in Seattle, you've got crime, you have, you've got property crime, um, quality of life crime that's so high and barely even being reported anymore because people are, if they even are arrested, they're just let right back onto the street. They're not held at all. And when they get a, a jail sentence, it's like crazy, crazy low. So at, at that point in Seattle, a lot of business owners, for instance, they don't even bother calling 911. They don't even bother filing a police report because that's what happens when you put people who consistently reoffend back out onto the street. But according to the left, this is okay. This is all right. If a little bit of that happens, it's okay because we're eliminating the disparate impact. We're equalizing things because poor people can't afford bail, so we have to get rid of bail. That's what makes sense according to their ideology. And you have to decide whether or not you buy into that ideology whether or not you buy into the idea that disparate impact in itself is unjust, or whether or not it's just a consequence of individuals 
making individual decisions. Of course, they don't make them in a vacuum. Of course, there are compounding factors. But who's driving it? And is that the thing that you need to be focused on, is individual agency? You know, if you do the crime, should, should we really be concerned? Because the vast majority of these people are not innocent. They're guilty. It's just that they're waiting to be proven guilty in a court of law. So are, are we supposed to benefit those people at the expense of the general public? Why do I have a problem with privilege theory? It's not because I'm a racist who doesn't care about the plight of black people or Hispanic people or Native Americans in this country. No, it's because privilege theory will not submit itself to the laws of logic. For instance, what I just said, you are benefiting criminals at the expense of the general law-abiding public. It's a blind faith and it pits groups against each other, law-abiding citizens against this smaller group of people who a minority of which may actually be innocent and who shouldn't be branded for their entire life as a criminal if, you know, they've just done one or two things and it was a huge mistake and they're going to reform their life and all of that. Everybody should be able to get a second chance if if they show that that's truly what they want. But you've got law-abiding citizens saying, please don't put the police out of our neighborhoods, don't pull them out of our neighborhoods, and please don't stop clearing corners. And the activists are saying, get over it. I mean, all the data in the world, all the data in the world is not going to make a difference if you are convinced of the primary culpability of these supposedly racist structures built into our society. And that's what Bloomberg has run into here. He's racist because of hotspot policing and stop and frisk. He's racist simply because of disparate impact, not because of the the actual details of what stop, question, and frisk produces, not because of the evidence that it is or is not a good deterrent, but simply because of the disparate impact. Speaking of justice, speaking of justice, Jesse Smollett, who if you remember last year, filed fake police reports saying that he had been the victim of a hate crime, that he had been attacked by two dudes like wearing MAGA hats on the street and strangled. And it it came to light that there's abundant evidence that he was faking this whole thing. It was supposedly an allegedly racist and anti-gay attack of January of last year. Well, he might just be getting the justice he deserves because if you remember, um, his charges were mysteriously and suddenly dropped. Smollett is due in court February 24th. Webb said in a statement, he's this this special prosecutor, he said in a statement that Smollett faces six felony charges. He was indicted by a grand jury of disorderly conduct charges that stem from four separate false reports that he gave to police in which he contended he was a victim of a hate crime, knowing that he was not a victim of a hate crime. Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox dropped those charges. I, w- I went back and, and listened to, to what Jesse Smollett said after his charges were dropped. Just listen to this. I've been truthful and consistent on every single level since day one, but I'm a man of faith and I'm a man of that has knowledge of my history, and I would not bring my family, our lives, or the movement through a fire like this. I just wouldn't. But make no mistakes, I will always continue to fight for the justice, equality, and betterment of marginalized people everywhere. Yes, make no mistake. He's going to fight for justice and equality for marginalized people everywhere. I mean, it, and there are people who actually are backing him up 
Like there was a black pastor that was making statements the other day. We find it rather peculiar, rather rather strange, and rather interesting. This is coming out at this moment. People actually backing up Jesse Smollett, despite the evidence. Like I said, all of the data, all the evidence in the world is not going to make a difference if your ideology is resistant to facts and evidence. The left is willing, I'm sorry to say, to put actual justice on hold, as Kim Fox was, on hold in favor of social justice. I mean, really, Democrats believe in the injustice of oppressive race and class structures so much that they are willing to benefit people they know are guilty directly at your expense. You may say, oh, filing a police report, you know, it's, that's not that big of a deal. It's fairly minor. A lot of money was spent on this case. A lot of police resources, i.e. taxpayer dollars. And all of that was about to just be blown out the window because the charges were dropped. And now it looks like finally we may be getting some justice. The facts may in fact win out in this particular case doesn't happen all the time, so when it does, I do think it deserves to be celebrated. When I come back here in a second, I'm going to talk about the interview that I did with uh, disability rights advocate Chris Ford over in New Zealand. I thought it was a very, very interesting conversation, and I got a lot out of it. I think, if you haven't listened to it, that you will too. Did a full one we actually did a few one. Big change. Left. The light bulb went off. It crystallized for God me. God just opened my eyes to change my I mind. Changed my mind completely. Can you believe that we have already made it past episode forty-nine? This is episode fifty. That's crazy to me. Anyway, episode 49 was an interview with Chris Ford, who is a freelance writer and advocate for people with disabilities and also a former uh, candidate for MP for the Green Party in New Zealand. He himself has cerebral palsy. And I, I really enjoyed my conversation with him, especially since we come from basically diametrically opposed political ideologies. He's very, very progressive. I am, of course solidly on the conservative side of things, but I found what he had to say and his reasons for flipping on the issue of assisted suicide to be, nevertheless, despite our differences, very compelling. And there were definite areas of overlap between his and mine. One of the biggest things that he brought up was that there is a a history of oppression of disabled people. And that, of course, is directly relevant to how assisted suicide would be employed if legalized in New Zealand. Disabled people have often been the subject of medically driven or derived euthanasia, in particular since the days of eugenics and even further back than that. In classical Greece, for example, and Plato and Aristotle were, amongst others, the champions of this, there was the practice of infanticide of disabled people. So it goes all the way back then. And I myself have written about infanticide before and how there there is this abhorrent history that a lot of people don't know of that people like Aristotle were supportive of. You can start to really question things and think, mm, maybe we're not as insulated 
from such evils as we thought we were. And maybe the people that we have upheld to such a degree were not as moral and upstanding citizens or thinkers that we thought they were. So people often don't understand that disabled people, particularly once they exist outside of the womb, once they are born, are often judged and characterised or have often been viewed as the subject of medical infantilization, all of that. And so therefore our lives have often been placed at risk, as was the case, for example, for German disabled people and disabled people that occupied Europe under the Nazis. As I have said before, again, past performance is the best indicator of future results. And so I I asked him to confirm it. I'm like, are you saying that because of this history of oppression, it's not just hypothetical that assisted suicide may be used as a tool to sort of force disability people out of the mortal realm? And he was like, yes, it's not just hypothetical. We know that there's a history of this. And for him, that, that, that made a big difference looking back on that, knowing that, you know, he was already a, a proponent, a strong proponent of, of rights and much stronger resources from, from the state for disabled people, knowing that he's looking at, well, you know, I got to look at the history and see if this fits. And does this, does this position that I have been holding that, uh, assisted suicide is, is fine as long as there are certain safeguards in place. Does that fit with my with my ideology and what I already know? I take, for example, the view that d- disabled people are disabled by the society in which we live in. It's the social model of disability. So therefore, d- disabled people are subjected to the very negative, stereotypical attitudes that inform public perception and thinking, popular attitudes towards disabled people. It is undoubtedly uh, a great amount of othering that happens with the disabled population. These people aren't like me. They're different. They can't do the things that I do, especially if they're learning disabilities, um, syndromes like uh, Down syndrome. You know, people think the, these people are somehow fundamentally, fundamentally different than me. And so there, it's this, this social model where it's, it's not just what is happening with you physically or in your brain, but the, the society around you, which makes living life as a disabled person so much more difficult. Which, I mean, of course that's true. Of course that's true. Where we might disagree is, how much of this is likely to come from the government and how much of this uh, springs naturally from the general society that we live in, this neoliberal society that we have in New Zealand and Canada and the U.S. and so many other places. And so I inquired more specifically on that question. But I know that on that side, on the terminal illness side, it definitely changed things. And even, uh, you know, insurance companies saying, yeah, you can't that, you know, somewhat experimental, expensive chemotherapy drug. Yeah, we're not we're not going to let you have that. But here's a you know, you can have assisted suicide pills for a buck twenty five. Absolutely, because 
that's neoliberalism writ large. This is why I'm also arguing from a progressive standpoint on the progressive left, the progressive democratic left, that really euthanasia is just another, voluntary euthanasia is just another means of reducing healthcare costs, particularly in systems like New Zealand's, which are largely publicly funded, which is a good thing, of course. However, in places such as the United States, which with a largely privatised public health system, private health system, you'll probably get those pressures a lot more. And now, I would disagree that in a privatised system that you would get those those pressures a lot more because private systems offer more choice. And so if somebody is not giving you a choice in experimental drugs that might save your life or or even just prolong your life or give you a much better quality of life, there's a greater chance that there is a, another insurance company out there that is willing to offer that for you because that is the miracle of competition and the free market. So we would, of course, disagree on that. But at the same time, it, like I said in the interview, you can't doubt that you've seen right away that there are effects of this on the the public side, the publicly funded side, and on the private insurance side um, regarding assisted suicide, which is why it's so dangerous. You know, free markets in themselves cannot insulate people from oppression, from immor immoral behavior. You have to have moral people in order for any society, whether you have huge chunks of it that are publicly funded or the vast majority of it that is run privately for any society to to function well, to function to the best that it can. You have to have moral people. You have to have people who believe in equality, who believe in the rights of the individual. And we don't always have that. And so that's where, you know, I, I would part ways with Chris, especially with regard to the the spiritual aspect of assisted suicide and the faith aspect and what are your beliefs built on because if you don't have some sort of foundation for your belief in the sanctity of life then you're just going to sort of get get washed away by this incoming tide of people who want a certain policy to be put in place or who want you to make a specific decision. In order for you to really stand your ground, in my opinion, you do have to have some sort of moral foundation for your belief. And in uh, according to to Chris, he, you know, he's trying to to fight and receive what he says is our due of extended support for more fulfilling and equal lives. And in order for you to to get that kind of support, you've got to have people that believe that that is the right thing to do, obviously. That's why so much of what I say on this podcast really comes down to morality, and it really comes down to your fundamental beliefs and your faith. Um, you know, that's no accident. That's not just because I have a preference for talking about theology or something like that. I truly believe that. But in any case, you know, like like Chris says, we don't have an equal and just society naturally that just doesn't naturally spring up, especially since, like you said, the social model of disability, people's choices are informed by the availability of social supports. 
So on the one hand, you've got like libertarians who say people should be able to do whatever they want with their own bodies. And why should you get in the way of that? And then you've got people on the left saying basically the same thing. People should be able to do whatever they want with their own bodies. And also any body that resides within them, they have the right to do whatever they want with that as well. The thing is, is that we as individuals are not atomized. We don't make our decisions in a vacuum. We make our decisions in a social world. And those influences do have an effect on our agency to the point where often you can say that our agency is greatly diminished because of the pressures that we face from the outside. And that is why ultimately I'm not a libertarian, as elegant a philosophy as it is, because I realize that the community around me, that the institutions that I respect and the institutions that govern me have a massive effect on my decision-making, not just from a laws or rules perspective, but by the ideas that are promoted and the, the social pressures that I face. The bottom line, I think, is, like I said, choices are not made in a vacuum. And past experience, like Chris put it, as far as the history of disability, past experience tells us that, and that is one of the biggest reasons why assisted suicide should be opposed if you value human autonomy, if you really value human autonomy, because a lot of people on the left or the libertarians, they're like, we believe in bodily autonomy. But if you really value it, you have to understand that people are so greatly influenced by the people around them. For instance, you know, you've got people as young as 12, even 11 being euthanized and you have to wonder, are they capable of making that decision by themselves? Did they fully make that as an autonomous decision or were they extremely influenced by the adults in their lives, by the authority figures in their lives who are saying, you know, maybe this is the best option for you? If you really believe in human autonomy, you would protect people from the legality of a policy like this, which could literally take away your life. You would protect people from that if you value bodily autonomy. Even if you don't have a spiritual or religious objection, if you look at these facts, you I think it's plain to see. So if you haven't listened to that interview, I think it's full of really good conversation and some really thought-provoking stuff. That's episode 49 with Chris Ford. I think I titled it uh, Disability Advocate Flips on Assisted Suicide. So do go check that out. And if you have thoughts on that episode and you want to share your own opinion on assisted suicide, and for instance, especially if you think that me or Chris is just dead wrong, you should definitely text or leave a voicemail on the flip phone at 323-999-1802. I will also, of course, put that number in the episode description so that you do not have to hold it in your brain. 323-999-1802. Of course, you can follow the podcast on social media at 180cast, where I have been sporadically posting episode sound bites. Uh, I am overcoming um, a doubleheader cold. One of them may not have been a cold because I had a fever. Um, so uh, I've been behind, admittedly, on some of those things. Thank you for your patience with that. 
I will resume all of my normal, full-capacity operations with this podcast as soon as I can. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to In the middle of Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Music by Reefy Crap. In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am, what I need, who I've got to be